0: Not every windstorm, earth tremor, or rush of water is a catastrophe. It's the collapse of the cultural protections that constitute the disaster.
1: Hello listeners and welcome to Squeezing the Orange of Social Science, a podcast co-hosted by myself, comedian Akinah Mobitan and Professor Dan Cable. On each episode, the two of us pick apart, peer-reviewed and published social science papers and we squeeze them for their best bits so that you, the listeners and now viewers as well, what's up YouTube, do not have to sit through pages and pages of academic literature. What's up, Dan? Hello, Akin. Hey, hey, Have hey. Happy day, <laughs> day to you. Yes, it's good to be alive. <laughs> I think <laughs> this is a good one, especially
0: <laughs> when we're going to talk about some contagion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're, yeah. We're back on the contagions, yeah. You can't get enough of it. This one has to do with the Spanish flu. And um, how you feeling? You, you, you feeling healthy yourself? I'm feeling really good. I feel
1: like I'm at optimum temperature. My, 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 my throat is, is soft and clear. I'm feeling very healthy. <laughs> feeling, I'm feeling fantastic for now, for now. Um, <laughs> I'm really excited to dive into this one. Really excited. Excellent. Shall we give shouts outs? Let's do it. Shouts outs. Let's, Let's, do shouts out. Out.
0: Let's do shouts outs. Let's go. This paper was published in the Academy Management Journal in 2018, and it was by Huggy Rao and Henrik Grieve. And it's called Disasters and Community Resilience, Spanish Flu, and the Formation of Retail Cooperatives in Norway. Why hey. Norway, I can. <laughs> well, Norway Norway was really interesting because when I saw the title
1: as well, I was a bit like, why Norway? So they went on to explain why. And Norway provided quite the interesting case study. So for, for several cultural reasons, it was an interesting case study, but also it was fascinating because it was one of the countries from which they were able to get a lot of data to play with. And that data wasn't just in terms of, you know, who caught the Spanish flu, who survived and who died, but they were also able to look at how, how like the banks reacted. How like how like census checks were conducted, um, what businesses were formed and which went. So for some reason, like a hundred years ago, the Norway the Norways, the Norwegians were very into very into the numbers. Yes. So I guess that provided like a a great uh like uh platform from which they could then go back and start looking at
0: what's up. That's really cool. And when I first read it. I was really intrigued by the idea of looking at another contagion, you know, because we're all kind of caught up in this one now. And, you know, frankly, sometimes it can feel like the end of the world if you only look at what's happening, you know, right now. But if you take that historical perspective and you start to look at, like in this case, 20 million deaths globally, I think in three years, it starts to kind of put what we're experiencing in at least a different frame. Uh, I really enjoyed that. But as I unpacked it, as I started really getting into it, the theory that they're developing was very powerful for me, and I think it's really aligned with some of our talks, uh, a squeezing the orange kind of talks, about we all have to frame reality, and that there's a fair amount of latitude in how we frame disasters. And um, I don't know, that kind of caught me with a left hook, like... You kind of forget that you have to frame disasters. You know, sometimes it seems like, well, it's just there. It's like, well, depends on how you think of it, I guess. And that was powerful for me. And I don't know if you want to say anything about like how just at the top level, they very clever, very interesting theorizing about how framing the disaster then affects the community's resilience. Do you want to, you want to say a couple words about like community resilience?
1: Wow. Yeah, I, I definitely do. So what I find really fascinating is quite a lot of the studies that we, we look at, Dan, it's very much from the, the perspective of the individual. So. With a lot of the papers that we squeeze, it's like, okay, so me as an individual, how can I now adapt, adjust, and better navigate this life of mine so that my engagement with life is richer, more meaningful, and more authentic? And this paper is looking at how that happens for like, well, not even for like, for societies. So when you now start looking at an entire country, what is the, I guess, the psychological profile of a country? And what effects does that then have on how the com- how the country deals with a disaster? Yeah. So they had quite a few hypotheses that they were looking at in, in this one. And we, we won't necessarily dive into them all. But one, one of the things that was really interesting was to look at this idea of how a community is impacted by an outbreak. So how a community is impacted by an outbreak and how does that impact the, the, the community in the short term and in the long term as well. And this comes back to the point Dan made about, it kind of comes down to how the disaster is framed. And they were able to look at Two very important ways of framing a disaster, so this was all under the umbrella of it being a natural disaster and this is where this is where the paper starts to get really spicy it gets really it gets really interesting because what they observed is that for several natural disasters what happened is we're able to look up to the skies and curse God like why did you let this hurricane befall us and then we all kind of like gather together and then we cooperate to rebuild a town, a village, a city. But what happens when you have a natural disaster, but the way that it impacts individuals is how it's transferred from humans to humans. And what happens there is quite the opposite. We now stop blaming mother nature and we now start looking at each other with you, suspicious right, eyes. You made me sick, you bastard. You only washed your hands for 18 seconds.
0: And I think that that is so primary. That idea right there. I think that that is in some ways the important piece of this paper is that if we, in social psychology, you know, we basically know that how we frame reality affects the way that we respond to that reality. And this idea, um, of maybe attributing or blaming the disaster on something that's beyond our control is a very different way of dealing with it than blaming it on something, say, either man-made or person-spread. So, like, when President Trump is currently trying to, like, blame the Chinese for COVID-19, he is intentionally imputing a frame, and then that frame has implications and changes people's motivations. And that's really you know, at the minimum, that's interesting, and it may even be profound. And um, I think that there's also something really, really important here. I was just going to say, like, the basic idea. And I think, I think this has already kind of trickled out, Akin, but I wanted to say it, like, almost for me, to kind of remember what, <laughs> what the hell's going on here. <laughs> the basic idea is, like, when a disaster frame attributes harm to other members in the community, like, that's kind of like, if they're making me sick because they're contagious then what happens is it leads to suspicion and distrust and then that undermines resilience and makes us less likely to work together. And then that contrasts almost perfectly with a a disaster frame, like, you know, the God has sent weather down, this kind of thing. And then in such a case, there's this shared fate idea. Like it's out of our control and so we all bond together and that makes us resilient. And I think that, you know, that's a really important concept and I can, I don't know if you wanted to take a little step toward this but I I'd love for us to say a couple of words about how this connects up with that terror management stuff. Oh please do. Yes, it's, yes, please do. We had
1: the we had the episode Man, I need to I need to start remembering the titles of all of the ones that we did. But yeah, we did have an episode. It may have been the one on the Scrooge effect.
0: It, possibly. Was.
1: it ah, hey, I do remember. Go Akin. Well go Akin. Um, but yeah, Dan, yeah, please take it from there. Well,
0: I think the long and the short of it is we're way more likely to want to blame other people because I don't think we human beings like just admitting that we have very little control over our fate. And I, I even think like I'm seeing this with the COVID thing right now. I think a lot of people would like to go ahead and blame, you know, give me somebody to blame. But just don't let it be random, because this is too mm. big of a just to be random. <laughs> oh man, you
1: know what? So I, I think we need to, I think we need to take the chains off of this paper a little bit, Dan, because we we've got a lot of different directions that this one can can go in. So listeners. I hope you're buckled in, because Dan and I are about to have a lot of fun right now, because this paper now it starts it, it gets into psychology, sociology, history. And, and Dan just brings up a great point just now, uh, which is quite a philosophical one, which is if you're, if you're unable to come to grips with the fact that one, you are going to die someday and two, you don't have control over when that happens, why it happens, life starts to get very... It's hard to, it's hard to dabble in reality because you have to detach yourself from reality in order to not acknowledge that you're going to die someday and with life comes a great deal of chaos. So this appetite to find something to blame... I, I believe what it does is it re our energy in a way that is not productive. And this is what we see in this paper. We see what happens is when people believe that the disaster is natural, what they do is they divert their energy towards working together because it's like, okay, we understand the problem. We understand where it has come from. Science can kind of tell us why it has come, but we understand that if we work together as one, it can be solved. And what seems to be happening with contagious, uh, contagious uh, disasters is the very individuals that should be working together to make life better. As Dan mentioned earlier, they start to mistrust one another and this starts getting into some very, it gets into some very interesting terrain. And this is why Norway was such a great example because what they were able to discover there was that the best way to recover from disasters, whether it's a contagious one or a natural disaster, is for everyone to work together and start creating new... How did they put them? They, they described it as like foundings. Um, and cooperatives.
0: Yeah, and cooperatives. Basically like protecting each other from meltdown, from disaster. And that might be financial ruins. So like you set up... You set up like, for instance, insurance companies, um, which are like co-ops, or maybe like physical ruins. So you set up like fire departments and police forces, but it's this idea about the community taking care of itself by bonding together and becoming stronger, as opposed to it leading to a breakdown of the fabric Um, And, and frankly, putting up walls and treating other people like they're the problem. And so like, some of this is almost like evolutionary psychology, some of the research they reviewed is evolutionary psychology, where they showed how contagious diseases evoked xenophobia, which is basically like, it's a threat management mechanism that like those people are bad. Those people over there are bad. And then what that leads to is like you, you make it illegal to have like immigrants coming. It's the same stuff we're seeing right now in the United yeah. States anyway. Like let's build walls. Let's not let in people with uh, uh, you know, other, other nationalities and so on. And like, that is kind of, um, it's a human but sad and ineffective response in some ways. Yes. It's almost like, have you ever heard that thing, like the best thing that could happen into the whole world right now is if we got invaded from outer space? Yeah, Then we'd be like, holy cow, we're kind of just like one. We're all right, one here. But unfortunately, what happens instead is you get a sickness and we start all putting up walls and pretending other people are the problem. Um, we could start to dive into the study a little bit itself, like the methodology that they used, um, on the one hand, very clever, on the other hand, as a social psychologist, some stuff that's fairly, at the minimum, difficult for me, difficult to understand, and in some ways difficult to interpret. Um, before we jump into that, I was going to read you a quote. This goes back to, uh, I think it was 1919, where um, there's this really interesting quote. It was Arthur New- Newsholm, and he was the chief medical officer, and he urged citizens um he emphasized that the control over the disease can be secured by the active cooperation of each member of the community. And I thought, A, that's pretty interesting to kind of show what Akin and I are talking about right now about cooperating and defeating the problem. But it also sounds just like the kind of thing that the chief medical officer today would say, <laughs> you know, in terms like wearing masks and not going out when you shouldn't go out and essentially like not sneezing on each other and you know if you're sick you quarantine for two weeks and all of this and uh, again i just find that kind of interesting how prescient and almost repetitive history can be it's almost kind of reassuring in a weird way like well they got through it so you know we'll probably make it if not you and me i can the world will, the world <laughs> uh, will keep going right they got they got through it and they were dumber than
1: we are so we <laughs> we gotta like <laughs>
0: Like they were, they were <laughs> like they, know. they didn't even have the internet, right? Yeah, they, <laughs> they couldn't even Google stuff,
1: they didn't have Amazon Prime. Come on, man, they didn't stand a chance. They, and they got through
0: it, they were fools. Oh, honey, I guess I'll just go to the shop. I know it's contagious, but I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more, more
1: buns and no hot dogs. Just <laughs> it won't do. It will not stand. <laughs> well, so let's, let yeah, let's as we as we are kind of like getting into the the science of what they did. Because I was I was reading this and I was really curious because I've got used to reading a different kind of paper i've got used to reading things because you sling them my way dan you sling them my way you'll sing a few over to me and you'll be a bit like what do you think of these i'll read the abstracts we'll pick one and then we'll have some fun with it so while i was reading this one this to me and you can jump in dan um this to me felt more like a it felt more like a history paper yeah then it did a a science paper. I'm not sure what your thoughts were on that, Dan.
0: The first thing is that it is clearly more sociological than I'm used to, you know, in terms of my own stuff being way more psychological. And that means it's up one level of analysis. And you'd kind of hinted this, Akin. Rather than dealing with like this person reacted in that way, it's that this community of, say, a thousand people had this level of contagion and responded with this many uh, cooperatives. And by cooperatives, these are like risk pooling. Essentially, it's ways to pool the risk and share in the mutual gains and share in the mutual losses. So basically insurance, banking, you can see this in things like fruit processing, um, like You can look at things like, I mean, in this country, grain elevators, you know, it's just, it's things that allow a common piece of equipment to be used by lots of people so that you kind of protect against the downside or frankly, social disaster. That's what these cooperatives do. And I think that what's I'm going to use the word clever. What's very powerful and clever here is that by gathering this really sweet data set that they already had in Norway and then combining it with facts about how many of these kind of cooperatives were started up and then comparing it to times when there was another kind of disaster. In this case, when there was this like freeze, I forget what they called it, but I think it was, it was like a spring frost. A spring frost—it's another kind of disaster because this sort of a farming-heavy community, like back then, you know, this would be like nineteen um, ten, nineteen nineteen—that that zone, um, pretty much everybody's farming, and it's a farming-dependent um, kind of economy. And yep. then the idea that you'd have one of these spring frosts, like apparently, like it just wiped people out. And so, if you didn't have these risk pooling, mutuals, insurance, and banking, and so on, you would just have utter ruin. You know, it would just be chaos essentially. And so in some ways, that's what they're looking at here is they've gone up a level of analysis where they're looking at social, um, almost like social functionality and instead of like individual decisions and behaviors, if that makes sense.
1: It does, and just to just for the listeners as well, I would not normally talk a lot about a spring frost, but I believe what it does is provide a great deal of context into what they were comparing here. So the the spring frost is something that does or maybe did impact the lands of Norway, and as Dan mentioned, this was like a farming issue because what this meant was that they weren't able to now produce. The, the crops required to feed the, I guess, the country. And even if you re- reduce it down to a smaller uh, group of people, it could be the village. Um, so the spring frost was really interesting because that was a comparison of a, a natural disaster in which you blame nature. And they were comparing how people reacted slash responded to that versus how they responded to the Spanish flu in which individuals were more likely to blame one another. So um, what I'd also love to do as well is to give a, a little takeaway uh, a little early in the, the episode before we start getting into takeaways, what this paper does. And I would, I would say that this is one that's definitely worth everyone picking up and reading because What it does is it outlines a lot of what is coming next for us. So by reading this paper, it gave me a lot of insight because they were talking about how things initially happened when the virus struck. So this was like disarray, the media and politicians. I believe back then it was referred when it first hit, they referred to it as the chills, Mm. which reminded me of when COVID hit and they were like, it's just the flu. So there were immediate parallels in the paper, they talk about how, like churches, schools, um, places of public gatherings, so like theaters, pubs, these places all then went to went and were were closed. In the paper, they also talk about panic buying, so people panic buying medication and supplies. A lot of this is written in the paper, and what I think is really great for our listeners to to pick up on is. What this does is it allows you to get a glimpse of what to expect from society. And what I mean by that is currently a lot of discussion is around this R number, which is the rate of transmission. And the higher the R number, the higher the number of cases we're going to see. And what we're going to see, and I predict this quite confidently, what we're going to see is as that R number increases and the number of cases increases. What's likely to happen also is there will be an increase in the number of deaths. So, as all of these three numbers go up, what we're going to see is the cohesive nature of society break down. And that does sound quite heavy, but I'm hoping that all of our listeners will chill out because, as Dan mentioned, this happened before. Don't be one of the people who join in in all of this finger pointing and blaming one another. This is going to happen. As these numbers increase, there's going to be a lot more salacious headlines, mistrust. We, don't need to, we do not need to take part in that. We do, we, we do not need to. History has shown that it's not helpful and it breaks down society. The other thing that I think is going to be helpful as well for listeners is if you do have the time and you're curious about how you can spend it in a way that helps, there is a lot of value in joining some sort of charity or group because they were able to show that this is what actually helped communities to build more resilience. It didn't come from vaccines. It didn't come from medication. The resilience was actually built from cooperative practices and behaviors. So people feeling more like they are part of a community, they are supported. This allowed individuals to build more mental and psychological resilience, which then enabled the communities to have more mental and psychological resilience. And this paper showed that what ha- I'm going on a bit of a long one here. So like, okay. but, but what happened is the effects of the Spanish flu lasted far longer than the actual flu itself. And what I mean by that is Dan mentioned, I think it was in the space of like about three years or so. Listeners do feel free to correct us on these numbers, but in the the span of about three years or so, 20 million individuals lose their lives. But what we find is that in Norway, this was 0.6% of their population. So globally, about 20 million. In Norway, it was 0.6% of their population lost their lives however the negative effects were more the social the social impact okay. and they estimate that that lasted about 25 years it took 25 years before trust was rebuilt In that society regarding the spanish flu and i've gone off on a bit of one there so i'll I'll hand over to yourself i
0: I think that almost all the things you said there you know you did a really good job of talking about what happened at the level of the phenomenon and then what we need to start doing now you know because it's science yep to do a little bit of looking at how they operationalized the variables because, yes. Like, for example, when they said the community sort of shut down for 25 years because of lack of trust, that was inferred by looking at the number of cooperatives that were started after this uh, you know, illness swept through, as opposed yeah. to what happened when there was the spring frost, when the opposite happened. Rather than cooperation, meaning these cooperatives going down, which is what happened with the flu, Spanish flu, cooperative, cooperation actually went up when they had the sort of spring chill or whatever that is called. <laughs> the spring frost. <laughs> and the power in this is actually quite strong because what they did is they very clever data gathering because they had like an 1896 report to the parliament and that provided data on like village fires and insurance. Um, then they had data on insur- insurance from the annual report to the Norwegian insurance associations. They got monographs from the insurance industry from that period. The savings bank provided data on savings banks' foundings. I mean, it's just really, really clever that they went back and got all this sort of Norwegian really granular data that they could use. And then they applied that to 597 municipalities because that's the level of analysis. There oh, was- if you could, sorry to just to jump in Dan, as well. So
1: when we talk about these cooperatives, if you could just, just cause I know we're going to leave the listeners in a little while, but if you could just say a little bit about the cooperatives Um, And then also the municipalities as well. So that's like partly for me as well, listeners, you're not alone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The municipalities are essentially just the different domains within the country. You know, you could just think about like the different areas, like in the United States, these would just be like different communities. They'd be smaller than, for instance, the states, but they would be, um, you know, bigger than like your neighborhood. And it yes. just be kind of how the lines were drawn. And some are like closer to the coast. Some are more inland. Some would be more developed. Some would be less developed. Some would have greater religiousness. Some would have less religiousness. And they put a lot of those variables in there. But I think that the really important thing that they're doing is they are using uh, startups of these cooperatives as an index or some, the fancy word is a proxy. They're using yes. that as a proxy for cooperation. And right off the bat, you know, there may be listeners right now who are like, well, I don't think that's a very good proxy at all. It might just be, they had more money laying around or, you know, it might just be that um, they had less to do. And so they, you know, it's fine. You know, that's the thing with science. You have to look at the variables and the way they use them and then decide if you buy it. Now, as a social psychologist, the way we, we wouldn't do the research this way because we wouldn't ask this type of question. What we would probably do ideally is go around after an outbreak and ask questions about how people are responding psychologically and behaviorally to that. And then the outcome variable still might be starting a cooperative, but we would gather data on whether they suspect people, whether they have Mm. a lot of trust. And that's called showing the mediation. We try to show that the mechanism is what the theory says it is. With this type of up, Scale, you know, looking at community level data. This is sociological. You kind of just have to make assumptions. I mean, listen, the data move around. You really do have these five hundred ninety-seven communities. You have all these different startups around insurance foundings, and you have like Village Fire and all this stuff. But you are making a huge, in my opinion, cognitive leap to go from the argument of the theory to the sort of clever use of the data. And frankly, I mean, even the idea, I, I'm sure you saw this, um, Akin, but the, the sheer number of control variables that they had to put in there, um, you know, like when there was a war, because they looked at this for over 25 years, they put whether or not there was war going on. They put in the latitude to say how far north or south and close to the coast this was. They looked at rural versus um, cosmopolitan they looked at the human population of that area they looked at the rag- the lago rhythm of the municipal area they looked at population diversity, religious dissension, proportion of poor people, mortality they essentially got all the data they possibly could find and they just dumped it in this regression equation and you know again as a psychologist we wouldn't do that that way you know you for us, when you put that many things in there, and then you sort of run the regression, you're teasing out so many other factors that what you're left with becomes a little bit hard to interpret. Um, I don't know what your idea—I mean, I don't know like what your statistical background is there, Akin. But I wondered, like, as somebody reading this from the outside, what was your response to all those like control variables? Did you kind of get what they were doing there? I—I I, I got
1: what they were doing. Um, so a lot of what they were doing was, um, above my pay grade, so to say, but I I understood what they were doing and I understood why they were doing it as well. And I, I did agree very much that their outcomes were finding something that's very useful for us to learn. However, I was struggling with making the, the link between how that's evidenced like that part I found a bit tricky. Like I, I, I got the question that were asked, they were yep. asking and I got the answer that was provided and I see the value in both. The link wasn't as easy for me to grasp. So at some point during reading this, I began reading it more for the historical value yep. than the, um, the psychological value. Yep. And so that's why some of my analyses is very much like, Okay, what can I learn from the, the the history of this? And and so yeah, it's it is it is quite a tricky one for me to fully squeeze for those reasons. That I, I do very much back what they've found, but it's not as easy for me to say, Hey, and here's why they are right.
0: Yep. Does that make sense? It does. And um, I'll, I'll give a little bit of evidence as to like why some, I mean, you know, it is good science. This is published in a top journal. This is peer reviewed. It's not as though this is, you know, it's just a different type of science than we're kind of used to squeezing. But like some of the things do give you some realistic insight. For example, if the dependent variable is finding these cooperatives and that's one index of this community resilience.
1: Yeah. And just to say about, sorry, just cause I'm not sure if we did clearly say, but these cooperatives, these are like, this is, you could describe this as like people power. Yeah. So this is the individuals the <laughs> looking individuals, after each other. Yeah. Looking after each other. So a cooperative, let's say now we're in a situation where there's lots of like old people who are a lot more vulnerable. So you get like people from the the community who say, okay, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to form a group and we're going to go to these elderly people's homes and we're going to ask them for their shopping lists and we're going to go and get their shopping for them. And we're going to maybe check in on them every other day as well, just to make sure, you know, they're doing well mentally, physically, that would be like a cooperative or you, we might notice, okay, so like, you know, there's a lot more, maybe there's a lot more like homeless people on the streets and it's summer, and that's great. But, you know, winter's coming, and winter's going to be a lot rougher, so we're going to get a head start and maybe start, like, raising some funds for sleeping bags or shelters or blah, blah, blah. So a cooperative is the people themselves gathering together to form a solution that helps the society. And the paper is saying that when we start blaming one another or we start looking at each other as the threat, we're less likely to, to form these cooperatives. Yep. So I'll just, I'll just quickly hand that back to you, Dan, because I think I give myself a slap on the wrist where I don't think we fully, fully gave the, the importance of the cooperatives and why they were looking at it in this space. That's paper. right.
0: That's right. And I also think that some of the actual data um, give me some realistic insights here. For example, they found in the data itself that the foundings of these cooperatives are related to rural communities So that they were like lower in rural communities and where there's poor people, but that they were higher in communities when it was denser, larger, and where in the past they'd had more um, village mutuals and um, savings banks. So it's not as though the data is just whipsawing all around and we can't interpret it. It's just that there's an awful lot. There's one full page that is just numbers. It's like every possible control variable in there, Um, and so it's just, it's a different look and feel than we're used to in some ways. But if I just, cause you know, we want to kind of move toward close here. yeah. If if I kind of want to say like what they found in the data, they analyzed this data in 15 year intervals and they staggered them by five years. So this is like a longitudinal analysis and this is between 1905 and 1929. And what they showed is that the Spanish flu mortality had a significant negative effect on the formation of these cooperatives until 1929 and then it went up to 1944 and so they were able to show that the result kept happening but it trust rebuilt itself across time and this negative effect started dipping and going lower and lower across time so they kind of you could say they supported their hypothesis that the more deaths due to contagion, the less likely these people were to take care of each other. And the exact opposite happened with spring thaw. With the spring... <laughs> you're, ne- you're never, you're never going to get this wrong. Yeah. At
1: just this a point, you know
0: thing. what? It was, the, 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 ground, the ground
1: was cold. Well, <laughs> <laughs> how
0: it gets... You know how it'd be. <laughs> <laughs> they actually found that when this spring frost thing happens, an increase happened in the founding rate of these cooperatives up to 230% more likely to have cooperatives in the first model. And that's sort of like those first, um, whatever, 15 years. And then 155% in model two. Whereas if you look at the people dying, and um, it's this business about... Um, falling rate that it was it was actually 58% less likely to take care of each other in these in these cooperatives and then in that second stage it looks like 93% oh if the mortality rate hits 19 what they're basically showing there is the higher the mortality rates the greater the effect of that yeah so anyway, um, oh. <laughs> let's move toward what in end want listeners uh, and viewers to kind of walk away with. Oh, man, I'll I'll go first, right?
1: Because I'm just going to keep it nice, clean and simple. Peeps, 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 peeps. Man, I spend a lot of time on social media. I spend an unhealthy amount of time on social media. So this is kind of speaking to people who do the same at some point. You're just going to have to ignore everyone online, man. Like a lot of us, like we're living through a an, a time in which very few people have the answers and it would be it would be amazing. It would be great if someone did. But we we can't keep fighting each other over who should and shouldn't be going to the pub, who should and should not be wearing masks, who this and that and who that and this we got to cooperate because this study is simply saying like, yo, that cooperation is going to build resilience, it's going to build trust, and it's going to make sure that we're able to better navigate this
0: time together. Thank you for that, Akin. I'm going to jump on with something kind of similar, but it's this notion of waves. You know, I think most of us Mm. are now seeing in the United States, they are you know, higher than it's ever been before. And it's looking like, uh, a lot of people are getting very stressed by that as they start closing restaurants and all this again it's very likely that'll happen here as well and rather than sort of hoping that doesn't happen maybe taking Yakin's thoughts there and saying when that happens let's respond as well as we can in this particular case there are actually three waves it was the summer of 1918 then the second one was later in that same year of 1918 which we might expect um, Winter, we are in yeah. you know, twenty, and then the final wave was the next year. And, you know, I hope that doesn't happen. I really do. But this is often what happens with pandemics. And um, I think that rather than losing all hope, blaming each other, getting more angry, the idea would be how do we look after each other? So thank you very much, Akin, for chatting this one through with me. Um, pretty different kind of orange for us to squeeze, but yeah. I think messaging is very good. Totally. Oh,
1: and also, uh, while we're here, yo peeps, uh, if you are on LinkedIn, uh, search authentic, uh, yellow, no, not yellow. Oh my gosh. I'm going to get, I'm going to get fired. It's search a It's a orange, orange logo.
0: You know, like it. like, yeah yeah
1: it's you like squeezing it? the orange search authentic follow the linkedin page it's about to get on and pop in a game. and there we share lots of articles thoughts and findings around social science behavioral science positive psychology um and we also we also promote uh, the point positive Uh, strength based survey which allows uh, you know what it allows people to find out what they're like at their best so that they could be that version of themselves more often if you're not already right right if you're not already subscribed subscribe to the podcast Uh, and also as well if you're on iTunes drop us a five star uh, review that would be dope if If you you want us to love you I mean that's the way that's the way in (laughs) be our friends (laughs) and yeah when you see us tweet about it post on linkedin about it hit share we got a linkedin page that's coming as well because we're going to bring you all together it turns out there's a few hundred of you and we want to find a way of bringing you all together so dan and i are going to embark on a few more squeezing the orange projects to make that happen we're going
0: to make our own cooperative aren't we yes yeah Now i love you what you did there dan (laughs) (laughs) I don't got a PhD for nothing. (laughs) All right, (laughs) friends. Thank you for listening. Send this to somebody that you like if you got a chuckle or if you learned something new. Awesome. Take care of yourselves, peeps. Enjoy the rest of your lives. Ciao.